This is The Medical Republic. I'm Francine Crimmins. And I'm Felicity Nelson. This episode, we're talking about sexual dysfunction. Why is there such an awkward silence on this topic between chronically ill patients and their doctors? That's up later. But first, there's a new story that's had GPs buzzing on Twitter all of this week. So some GPs on Twitter are really furious about a story that came out in the Sydney Morning Herald this week. Basically, the story showed that patients were being identified by the Department of Human Services as having bipolar disorder based on their prescriptions. And then the department was sending letters out to these people to try and recruit them into a study. So how did this happen? So the Department of Human Services keeps a lot of data on the prescriptions. Every time you go to the chemist and buy a drug, uh, that's usually recorded by the Department of Human Services. It also keeps uh, data on Medicare billings. Um, So it's got quite a lot of personally identifiable information. Sometimes they like to help out research groups. And in this instance, they managed to get this research through an ethics committee. Um, And then the department didn't actually give the researchers access to any of this private information. What they did was facilitate the connection between the researchers and the people who might be interested in the study by sending out letters. It just came across as incredibly creepy to some of these patients who were furious and really upset and emailing their psychiatrists to figure out where the privacy breach happened. Um, And it just demonstrates that a lot of patients aren't aware that the department has all of this information on them. A lot of GPs on Twitter were deeply unimpressed with how this all went down. So Dr. Ewan McPhee, the president of Akram, tweeted, and this one's quite funny because it's broken up by line. Uh, So he said, I mean, what the heck was the ethics committee thinking? Thought bubble. Thought bubble. (laughs) And then in quotations, he quotes the department as saying, let's just reverse identify data and tag 50,000 Australians to it based on prescriptions without the knowledge or consent of patients and their treating doctor. (laughs) I don't think that's a quote from the department. I think he made that up. Uh, And then he says, no biggie, right? Uh, And here's one from Dr. Karen Price, a GP and co-administrator of GPs Down Under. She tweeted, this is big, big with capitalised letters. (laughs) Patients, we are trying to protect your data, but the race for data mining, like gold mining, is a business and compliance bonanza for many. Complain loudly because we support you. And then she does a little love heart, hashtag your GP. I also saw one from Dr. Tim Senior, a GP and advisor to the RACGP. He tweeted an entire thread, and this included a tweet uh, saying, The thing is, you may have opted out of the My Health record. You may be happy that My Health record has a secondary use of data framework so that you know what the health data in there will be used for, in theory. It does not matter! Exclamation mark. And he also said, this is not my health record. This is the DHS reports PBS and Medicare info to my health record. But at no point have you ever been informed or ever had the opportunity to opt out of your PBS and Medicare data being used in this way ever. He continued on and he said, the only way I, as a GP, could opt out of this to protect your information is to never offer another PBS prescription again and to never provide you with the option for a Medicare rebate again. So that's, that is pretty dramatic isn't it that essentially the only way that people could totally protect their data is to go off grid with um receiving any pbs scripts which is <laughs> incredibly unrealistic and unaffordable for many australians yeah i mean nobody would do that it would yeah, just get ridiculous. so expensive so this actually matches up with a story that i broke last year 
which was also looking at how the Department of Human Services is using our private health information. So I spent about four months sending FOI requests to the department um, to find out how many times they disclosed private identifiable uh, prescription and Medicare billing data to the police. Um, And it turns out that state, territory and police forces uh, have sent around 2,600 requests every year for the sensitive health data over the past two years. They don't need a court order to get this information from the department. So in what kind of situations are the police summoning these um, pieces of information? So we don't know. The department has refused to make these guidelines public. So I actually emailed and asked every single state and territory police force Uh, in Australia. None of them would tell me. Um, The only police force that gave me any any information at all was the Northern Territory Police, who said that they sometimes use this data to locate missing persons, which is a relevant use, because if a missing person has gone to their GP, probably useful for the police to know about it. Yeah, so I tried to get the guidelines, um, and the department wouldn't release them. Uh, And so I've actually gone and asked the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner uh, to review that decision. So we'll see later this year if we can get our hands on it. We know that the police make thousands of requests every year. We don't know how many of those requests were actually granted because the department wouldn't reveal this information. But they are actually legally obliged to report this data to the Privacy Commissioner. Um, And I found that they've only reported five of these disclosures over the past few years. Um, So the question is, why were they turning down thousands of police requests if that's what they were doing? And if they didn't turn them down, why did they only report five? Um, So is it five disclosures or 5,200 disclosures? We just don't know. Um, And to find that out, it takes so many hours of journalistic labour that it's kind of scary. There's really no way of holding... Um, government departments with this kind of information to account. Basically, it's a massive issue and there's a lot of questions that will remain unanswered until we hear the responses back from some of those inquiries that you've uh, put to the government, Felicity. But it's great to see GPs online um, making some noise about this um, because it's very important both to doctors and their patients. But now it's time to hear from a doctor with a different rant. Uh, This week's hot topic is from Dr Tim Senior. So I have a job offer for you. Come and work in a place where you will have longer consultations than the other GPs, but this is because you'll be dealing with more problems in each consultation and you'll see more complex chronic disease and you'll see more complex mental health and your pay will be less than your colleagues. $11 per hour on average, much less on some days. Tempted? Why not? And yet that is what we ask female colleagues to do every single day of their working lives. I'll repeat that figure. Female GPs are paid, on average, $11 less per hour than male GPs. That's on average. So yes, some women earn more than their male colleagues, which means that some women earn much, much less. And that is per hour. So it doesn't take into account maternity leave or part-time work. That's $11 per hour. Some of you will say, that's not a gender pay issue. I'm a man and I earn less too. Good. You too will benefit from making the system fairer. But that still doesn't explain $11 per hour on average less for women. It's a gender issue because it's a system that's predominantly unfair to women. Yes, some women earn more, some men earn less per hour, but we can make that fairer. And the evidence, whisper it, is that female doctors tend to get better outcomes than male doctors. 
We know the reasons for this and for the gender pay gap. Female GPs tend to see patients for longer. They tend to deal with more mental health, deal with more problems in a consultation and do more preventive health. Patients themselves tend to choose female GPs for more consultations they know will be more emotional. The problem is structural. Medicare funds so-called male activities, like acute care and procedures, more than it funds so-called female activities that involve emotional and cognitive hard work. If you doubt this, how often do you go home and complain and lose sleep about that really difficult sore throat or that painful knee injury? And how many times about that serious depression or borderline personality? See? Of course, we all need to campaign for Medicare reform to make it reward that cognitive and emotional hard work more fairly. But I don't think that's going to happen next week. We might choose to charge patients wanting to see female GPs more. But that just transfers the gender pay gap to our patients. We might say that women should choose to consult and bill more like men. Why it should be the women that change consulting style when there it is the more effective one, I'm not sure. Why shouldn't GPs doing more shorter consultations lengthen their consults, do more preventive health and more mental health in each one? Shouldn't the pressure be on them to be more effective rather than women to be less effective? The truth is that if one or two GPs in our practices, usually the women, are seeing the mental health and doing the longer consultations, they are subsidising the income of the others. They take these patients out of the lists of those seeing patients quickly. If you can see patients quickly, someone else is doing the mental health and doing it well, and they are subsidising your income. Let me say that again. Female GPs, mostly, not entirely, are subsidising male GPs, mostly, not entirely, income. So, until Medicare is reformed, the best way we have of closing the gender pay gap is to acknowledge this and distribute income fairly in our practices. The high income earners are being subsidised by the lower income earners, so they should pay this money back. Now, I know that not many people will want to do this. We don't mind seeing patients, often female patients, take the hit. We don't mind seeing our colleagues, mostly our female colleagues, take the hit. But we'd hate to take the hit ourselves. But it's only fair. Compare your patient list in your practice. Compare your billings and ask the lowest biller per hour how they're going and if they find their work draining. And then ask if we can all work together to make our profession just that little bit fairer for all of us. Make that job offer much more tempting. So when a patient gets diagnosed with a rheumatic condition, it can be quite overwhelming. There's treatments to discuss, uh, they have to explain their condition to their family, um, and there's a lot of, you know, it's a steep education curve. But one of the things that often gets lost is the topic of sex. You're definitely right, Felicity. I wanted to drag everyone into bed with this conversation about sexual function, and particularly focusing on patients that are diagnosed with arthritis. So I've been working on a feature to break down this conversation of talking to patients about sexual function and how it affects their lives and their relationships, basically. And you had some quite emotional conversations with patients. So I was lucky enough to be linked up with a few different patients that have experienced this, uh, I guess, from the point that they were diagnosed or even before their diagnosis and basically how they struggled and continue to struggle in their relationships because their sexual function is impacted 
by their disease. But the biggest thing for them is this silence that people never spoke to them about how their sex lives would be impacted by their disease, which seems minor when you think about it, because I guess from a medical perspective, there's so much else going on and people with arthritis may have other comorbidities and there's a lot to monitor, but something which seems like it should take a backseat, like sexual function, is actually very close to people's hearts because that is something that they were used to having as a staple in their existing relationships or something that they thought they might want to... Um, start exploring one day and it just almost gets ripped away from them or they feel as if they're no longer normal because of that so yeah it's quite an emotional topic one thing that was really common was there are a few people that because there's such silence in talking about how relationships are affected and the changing relationship the fact that someone might not be able to function for example doing the shopping in a way that they used to that the role, if they have an existing partner, has to change to support that uh, change in what their body can do. But another thing about that is that the intimacy in that relationship will also change. A lot of patients that I spoke to felt that because they weren't warned about absence of intimacy that could happen, that they were left kind of out in the cold and they weren't expecting it and they didn't know how to explain that to their partner. Their partner kind of as well, because it's such an invisible condition, didn't know whether it was the disease or whether their partner was kind of making this up in a way, which is really awful to think about. So I spoke to a few patients whose marriages came to an end because of their condition. They had partners for a long time that didn't understand the severity of their condition and how it wasn't a choice that they were choosing not to be intimate or that they were using their condition as an excuse. It was that they were in so much agony if they tried to have sexual intercourse with their partner that it just wasn't possible anymore. But on the flip side, there's patients that uh, had come to an understanding with their partner and they either through their own exploration or through talking to other patients, they had found ways that uh, worked for them and their partner, whether it was through changing positions or sometimes taking painkillers a certain amount of time before they had sex. So what can doctors do to set expectations a little bit better? Well, it's an interesting question. As I was saying, arthritis is complicated and people can have a range of other problems to do with it. So it's quite understandable that doctors wouldn't maybe have time to delve into this very niche and specific area of someone's life. But sexual dysfunction is something that is quite complicated and it can be caused for a range of reasons. Some of them are functional, as we were talking about. Some of them, it could be to do with the medication that people are taking, which can cause, you know, erectile dysfunction or the inability to have an orgasm, for example. Uh, But it's also quite deeply psychological So possibly being able to talk to your patients about this will open up a whole other gamut of things that might be going on in their lives. There's one study that showed that 76% of um, rheumatoid arthritis patients, their sexual dysfunction was being caused by uh, their own stress and anxiety about their disease. When I spoke to rheumatologists about it, they said that it actually wasn't uh, that they were feeling awkward about the conversation. It was just the whole thing of they're running their appointments to a clock. And so when you've got someone who has a very complicated disease walking through the door, there's a lot of preordained 
things that you need to do. You need to look at whether their medication is working, whether you need to run any tests, whether you need to deliver results of any tests that you've run in the past. And so in the first part of the appointment, unless the patient brings up a specific problem that is troubling them, it's very hard. They're not mind readers. They can't predict that that is a problem that's on patients' minds. Uh, But on the flip side, the patients, what I was gleaning from them was that it's very hard to bring it up because it makes them think that the doctors are very, very busy and they just want to focus on disease management. So they wouldn't want to even delve into something that may seem a bit obscure, like their sex lives. So it's this, um, I guess, a wall that's being put up on both the patient side and the doctor's side in many cases. So one thing that came out of this is that There's a lot of research and focus in both general practice and rheumatology about getting pregnant with arthritis or caring for children with arthritis or breastfeeding with arthritis. And when I was talking to patients, they actually laughed at this. They said it's very amusing because if doctors are so willing to talk about the mechanical side of sex of, you know, how you conceive that a patient might just magically appear one day and be pregnant with arthritis... Um, and they're skipping the step that unless you're having IVF, actually you need to have sex to get there. It's kind of like those rom-coms where they just black out as soon as there's a sex scene. <laughs> it is, yeah. It, it's like for patients, it's like the the scene where people are about to kiss and then it just yeah goes blank. It's very G-rated. We can only talk about very mechanical things, uh, which is a massive problem um, because, you know, it's very hard to see a pregnant person in your office if they don't have a sex life to begin with. I can see the logic there. Yeah, (laughs) but it does seem very logical and yet we're not seeing it in clinical practice. I mean, because we still all live in Victorian England. I think that's the problem. Yes, I do forget sometimes. So did you come across any tips for doctors in how to broach the topic and what things to talk about? Yeah, so on the patient side of things, all of the patients that I spoke to actually seemed okay with the idea of their doctor bringing up whether they were having problems sexually functioning. Um, Of course, the kind of comment in that area was that maybe not Yeah, so maybe not in the first appointment, that could go down a bit awkwardly. So like, hi, Tina, I'm Dr. Scott, and how's your sex life? You know, I think that that could make someone turn around and never come back. But it was something that they said that once they'd been to a couple appointments or there was some level of rapport with their doctor, they would be totally fine with that question coming up. And it would actually maybe take off a big burden that they feel that no one cares about their personal life and how the disease affects that. Um, So I found that quite interesting. Another thing though to note is that there's not many resources written by health professionals, if any. Um, All the professionals that I spoke to in this area and the patients were unaware of anything that they could direct patients to. There are a couple of consumer resources out there from uh, consumer advocacy bodies such as Creaky Joints and they have um, some cute little blogs about best sex positions when you have arthritis. But again, it's more blog style. There's not really that much research behind it. So, you know, maybe it's something that patients can learn through trial and error. And the other problem with some of those blogs is that they can be uh, very aimed at heterosexual couples 
and also isolates people who are in same-sex relationships or of different ages and experiences. And the other thing that none of it touches on is uh, masturbation or people that are having um, sex with themselves, essentially. It seems like you almost need a specialist who focuses on this area of people's lives. Is that a thing? Is that a specialty? A sexologist? Well, people can go and see like sex therapists or sex psychologists that can deal with maybe some of the emotional and psychological barriers that people face with sex. Um, as we were saying before, this is so multidimensional because it may be to do with medication. So that might have to be something that the rheumatologist has to look at and modify. It can be a problem of um, physical function. So that might be something that a physiotherapist has to do. And it may also be um, things that might be aimed more at a general practice audience. So problems with lubrication or other problems such as um, what contraception works for people and how that plays into their relationship. Well, it seems like that's a real gap. And that's the whole problem. This is a, it's almost more a social problem that fits into a wider health problem where we need doctors and allied health to work together and talk to each other about these this patient experience because it means a lot to the patients. It's also a reason why patients turn away from doctors. So I spoke to a lot of patients that because of their doctor's reaction to them bringing up these problems or trying to almost push them to another health professional or into allied health, that they never saw that doctor again because they felt very isolated. And patients also get very isolated or angered or annoyed when they try and bring up a problem of, for example, that they're not enjoying sex or they're unable to be motivated to have sex with a partner and the response becomes something very mechanical, like, oh, yeah, if you want to talk about contraception or things like that, go to your GP. Wow, that's so interesting. And I was kind of nervous about this podcast because I thought it was going to be, you know, such a heavy, difficult topic. But it sounds like there's actually, it's like quite an easy thing to talk about once you get rolling on it, Um, (laughs) which I guess is kind of a good way to end, right? It definitely is. And I think everyone has those reservations. When I first started writing this feature, I even had that moment in your throat where you're like oh god how am I gonna call all these strangers and ask them point blank about their sex lives it's incredibly daunting but I think after a while you realize that this is actually just a big part of patient-centered health it's very relevant to everyone's lives Uh, one patient said that once you have this diagnosis and you realize you are going to have it um, from this day until the day that you die Um, It's very important to try and reclaim your life as much as you can. And so a lot of the patients felt that if doctors could even bring this up um, at all, even once, even indirectly, it would make them feel um, like it's a far more patient-centered consult and they'd be more likely to go back and see that doctor again. So while you've been wrestling with that really difficult topic, I've been down an internet rabbit hole and I stumbled across uh, the topic of biopiracy. So I thought we could talk about that for this week's quirky medical history. So biopiracy is when a country, usually an industrialised, wealthy nation, goes into a foreign country and takes its biological resources, so a plant or a bug or a herb, without asking. So the foreign scientist then takes it home and runs experiments on it, and sometimes they 
they'll extract a novel chemical and patent a drug based on it. Yeah, but that happens quite regularly, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, the problem is that the profits from that biological resource don't often go to the country of origin. Mm. Um, so <laughs> it's sort of seen as a form of colonialism, which is why it's called biopiracy. It's sticking a flag in something and claiming ownership over it when, in fact, there were traditional owners of that resource. Are there any examples of this happening? Yeah, so the good news is that the real owners have started to fight back, um, and this happened in the 1990s. So in 1995, uh, two US scientists got a patent for the use of turmeric to treat wounds, and that was a pretty bold claim of originality because turmeric has been used to dress wounds in India for thousands of years. So an Indian research organisation filed the lawsuit, and the patent was actually revoked in 1997 by the US Patent Office. That's such a good success story. I know, it's really exciting. One of the problems was that India didn't have an easy-to-access catalogue of all their traditional medicines to prove that they shouldn't have patents made out of them. So they went and created one, and by 2005 they'd built a database. It's called the Traditional Knowledge Digital Library and contains a whole lot of herbal remedies from a range of different Indian traditions. So that's it from us for this week. Next week we're back and we're talking about sham contracts. We're speaking to a lawyer who knows all about contracts and how to know whether you are being employed under the right conditions. 